and contributing. And uh, Lord willing, we'll do it again next year if he tarries. We'll see. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, we're going to speak of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> it's a special season to do so, but that is our whole purpose to think of him and rejoice in him and worship him. So we're going to do so through Hebrews chapter 4. Before we get there, let me just fill you in on Chuck's situation. He is doing pretty good. The surgery went very well, prostate surgery and more. The cancer was not limited to that uh, organ, and so the doctor had to do some other work and thinks uh, he accomplished the objective. So uh, Brother Chuck had his catheter. Look, I'm telling you all kinds of stuff. And I really enjoy this. I, I must tell you. Yeah, he had the catheter removed on Thursday, so he's really doing uh, pretty well. He was on a clear liquid diet. You know how they do that. But now he's able to eat regular food in small amounts. He's been out and able to walk very slowly for a short distance with his uh, very trusted partner. Oh, no, not Maureen. Ike, this is a four-legged partner. Ike, the boxer, has discerned that his daddy is in need, and Ike has not left Chuck's side, which is really wonderful to see. So he's doing good. He's in good spirits. He'll be with us, I think, if things continue this way before long. His uh, stomach area, he, he said, is all bruised and discolored and, and all as, as is to be expected. He's awaiting the biopsy. It takes a few weeks until you get the biopsy results, so they're praying about that. Um, in six months, he'll start radiation therapy. He has to do it so they can make sure they got what they need to get. And then the, at the beginning of February, he'll have the next procedure, which is on his foot, beginning in February. He has to wait six weeks uh, after the surgery he had to have that next surgery. And frankly, his foot is causing him more discomfort now than all this other stuff uh, going on. And so he's looking forward to that procedure to try to try to get back to normal mobility. So he's doing good. He likes barking out orders from home in his pajamas and easy chair, you know, and uh, seems to be in good spirits. Now, Maureen, on the other hand, you can pray for because <laughs> Chuck, as is no surprise to you, is really a terrible patient and um, he's just a big baby. He's just a big, he's just a baby, a big baby. And uh, I find him to be a big baby. Did I have you shared that enough? So, in fact, I, I call him B-squared, B-big-baby, B-squared. So, anyway, Maureen, I told you someone brought him a, a, a little bell in the, while he was in the hospital so he could summon Maureen, and uh, Maureen can't find that anywhere. It's just an oversight on her part. And then someone else had the audacity to get him a whistle, and these are sweet Maureen's words. I directly quote her. She said, I'll tell you what he can do with that whistle. That's what Maureen said about the big baby. So, anyway, that's what's going on over there at the Schneider household. So, uh, he'll be back with us soon. Thank you all for praying. They're doing well. Um, so, Hebrews 4 is where we're at. And let me just preface it a little bit. Uh, it's about rest. Ultimate rest. Um, it's about finding ultimate rest in Jesus. 
fact, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is far better than anyone or anything else. The author, whoever he or she is, we don't know, has made a strong case for the greatness of Jesus. He's better than angels. He's better than prophets. He's better than Moses. And he's a better place to go when you're looking for rest than uh, to anyone or anything else. That's the point of this particular chapter. Now, before we delve in, uh, let me tell you this. There are some people who don't believe in God at all. We call them atheists. It's like a compound word, a-theos. The a negates the theos. Theos means God. They don't believe in the existence of a creator being a personal deity, atheists. There's another group of people who believe in God, but not that he is personal. They are called pantheists. A pantheist is someone who identifies God so closely with nature that the elements in nature become God. God is the sky. God is the sea. God is the mountains and so on. Those are pantheists. Third category of people, we'll call them theists. Those are people who believe in a personal God who created the world. But amongst theists, there are two general categories. One group of theists believe that to be right with God um, requires accepting what he has done. Another group of theists believe that to be right with God means you have to do a bunch of stuff. So the first group accepts the fact that God finished whatever is necessary for sinful people like you and I to be okay with him. The second group says, oh, no, in order to be okay with God, the onus of responsibility is on me. Generally, those people are called religious people. So all the religions of the world would be in that category, every single one. So all the religions of the world, and do you know there are thousands, if you do a Google, Wikipedia, whatever thing, search, you'll see. There's just a proliferation of world religions. They're so different, and they're all the same. They're all the same in this regard. They all say sinful man or woman has to work himself or herself up to God through a ladder of good deeds. And you do the best you can to extend yourself to holy, transcendent deity, and maybe in the end he'll give you good grades for good efforts. That's world religion. In fact, world religion says the barometer of your standing with God is a function of how many of the tenets or rules of the religion you adhere to. And so uh, you have a better shot with God if you're uh, a more faithful follower of that religious system than somebody, somebody else. So regardless of the religion, I'm offending everybody. Every world religion is the same. Look. One group of theists hold to what we could call a done-for-you approach to God. God done did it for all of us by extending himself downward because our arms aren't long enough to extend ourselves upward. So God condescended to reach us because we could never reach him. And the form in which he did it was Jesus, the babe born in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. Now, the other group of folks do not hold to a done-for-you approach to God. They hold to what we could call a do-it-yourself approach to God. That's religion. Thank you, God, but no thank you. We will work our way up to you. What's the motivation? Pride. You see, you can take credit for your own salvation. So 
every world religion, though they're different and their particulars are essentially the same in this regard. The writer of Hebrews is very, very concerned that the religious people of the day, Israelites, Hebrews, would miss out on the better rest which is offered by faith and fall back into their old religious system. And he's concerned not only about them, but folks in every generation who may lean too much on self-righteousness, good works, and self-effort in order to live up to God's standards. I had a conversation with a rabbi once. I said to him, Rabbi, what happens when you die? Don't know for sure, said he. I said, yeah, but surely you can agree it's not final, and that when we die, we give account to Almighty God. For the sake of argument, can you agree to that? Yes, said he. Good, said I. When you then stand before God and have to give an account for the way you lived, what are you going to say on your own behalf? He said, I'm going to say I did the best I could. And I said, Rabbi, not going to cut it. Why, said he? I said, because the highest rabbi, Rabbi Moses, in Torah said of God, you must be holy because I'm holy. No, God's not going to give us points for doing the best we can. He expects that we be holy. And the rabbi said, no, he doesn't. None of us could, att- could attain to that standard of holy perfection. I said, I got it. And so what are you going to do? He said, I do the best I can. And it's as if, this is what he told me, when we stand, we stand before God, there will be like scales there that measure weights. And God will examine the scale for each of us. On one side of the scale will be our mitzvot, good deeds. On the other side will be our bad stuff. And he said we must do the best we can to make sure our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. And then on that basis, God will give us, you know, a passing grade. Of course, I told him that's not true. But I also told him, my, what a terrible way to live. He said, what do you mean? I said, you don't know of your standing with God. You are without rest. The writer of Hebrews doesn't want that rabbi or any of us to be without rest. If you're without rest, you are restless. The whole world, apart from Christ, is restless, looking for rest in all the wrong places. The writer of Hebrews 4 wants us to know, run to Jesus. He's a better source of rest than any other you may know. So that's kind of what's going on here. That's the backdrop. Now let's Pick up the action in verse 1, Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, I hope you have a Bible translation that begins something like that. It doesn't have to say therefore. It might say wherefore. It may say since. It may say then. If you don't have any one of those words, you probably should get a different Bible translation. That is a very key word. It must be in there. And it ought to be right at the front because it links chapter 4 with the previous chapter. This makes no sense unless you back up to what's been said before. And I'll tell you what's been said before. The ancient Israelites failed to enter into rest because of unbelief. That's what it said. Therefore, let us fear. Lots of times in the Bible, you see the command, do not fear. 
Here, we're commanded to fear. Why? What are we supposed to be afraid of? We're supposed to be afraid of unbelief. Because the unbelief of the prior generation of Israelites, the one preceding the ones to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing, they didn't enter into the place of promise because they're unbelief. Therefore, let us fear. Take seriously. How are you with God? Are you at rest with your creator? Are you at peace with him? Be fearful about it if you're not. Take it seriously. Let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. I think those are some of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture, no matter what else may be true. A promise from God is still in effect, still offered, still remains. It's a promise of entering his rest. Whatever may be true of you, and we all look pretty pretty and handsome and all the rest except for... A few exceptions, I'm looking at a few. <laughs> uh, but most of us look pretty good and well put together, but we're not. You know that. We're not. There are things in our lives that we wish not for others to know about, things we'd be ashamed of. If that's you and there's been a pattern of unrest because of sin or rebellion, this is for you. A promise remains. It's not over with you and God. There's still a promise in force. God has not retracted it. A promise remains of entering his rest. I beseech you, I, 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 I beg you, be fearful about your unrest with God. If you have it, settle it even today so that you can be at rest with him. So while a promise remains of entering his rest, be fearful lest any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Wow, God is speaking to Israel, privileged Israel. They were slaves, but boy, God heard their cry and, and distinguished himself with 10 plagues upon the government of Egypt. You remember that? And then God showed them miracles, the likes of which were, well, unrepeatable in many ways. The Red Sea parted. And then God provided for this people group for decades in the wilderness Manna from heaven, all the rest. And then God had their leader, Moses, go up to a mount, sign and come down with a constitution, the Ten Commandments. What a special, what an educated, what a specially, spiritually privileged group. And yet the writer here says, I'm concerned, lest anyone even of you seem to have come short. Now, if he said that to them, I can say, this to you, my fellow Sagemont Church people. Um, be sure you're not coming short of the rest that there is in Christ Jesus. Even though you're an esteemed people group, we're in a wonderful church, and we sing God's praises here, and you may even be a member. I don't know. You may have done many wonderful things still. It's possible to have an intellectual awareness of Jesus and yet not have given him a trusting heart. Uh, the only thing that kept the ancient Israelites from entering into the place of promise, that prior generation, was unbelief. It wasn't their age, their gender, or their race. It was unbelief. Those three things keep many in this room from some of the privileges of this society today. I know that. The door is closed to people uh, of certain races, genders and ages. I know that. 
But the ultimate prize, rest in Jesus, is open to all people, regardless of race, gender, and age. And the only thing that could exclude people from rest in him is that person's own unbelief. And what does that mean to believe in Christ? It means to lean into him. It means to lean on him. It means to trust him for rest. It means to look to him as the one who satisfied the penalty of our sin and thus is the way to be at peace with his father. Faith is not blind. Faith is to take a stand on, to cling to, to depend on the merits of Christ rather rather than on one's own merits. You become a theist who adheres to a done-for-you salvation, not a I-gotta-do-it-myself salvation. The only thing that can keep you out of your place of rest uh, is unbelief, as it did that prior generation. So it goes on, verse 2, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Uh, He's speaking to the present generation. As they had good news preached to them, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard didn't profit them. Why? Well, it wasn't united by faith in those who heard. See, the word united, you may have something similar. It's kind of a cooking term. It means the uh, mixture of ingredients. You have two ingredients. One is the promise of God, and the other ingredient is faith in it. When you mix the two together, you get a very nourishing meal, fit for eternal consumption. Uh, But the promise of God without the other ingredient of faith falls on deaf ears and is for naught. People have heard about the promise and offering and provision of God Intellectually, they lack for nothing, but they've not leaned into it. Uh, They've not embraced it by faith. And as a result, they don't have a meal that will nourish them on into eternity. It's possible to profess Christ and not possess Christ. You understand what I mean? You can probably not find a person in America who hasn't heard in some way or another of Jesus. In fact, many can tell you the whole story of his death, burial, and resurrection, and that's a starting point. But that ingredient is not enough unless it's combined by faith. And so you want to be careful. Uh, You may be a Bible student and even Bible teacher, and yet if there hasn't been dependence on the merits of Christ, not just knowledge of Christ, but dependence on the merits of Christ, not your own righteousness, but his, uh, then you too are falling short just as these ancient generations have. Now, verse 3 says, for we, verse 2 spoke of the they. Now, verse 3 speaks of the we. The they didn't believe. The we believed. Look, for we who have believed enter that rest. So you see the Uh, entrance into the rest which God offers again is not due to stock portfolio, cultural privilege, inheritance, particular race, gender, age. We who have believed enter that rest just as he has said And now what the writer is doing is quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Why is he doing that? Because remember the audience. (laughs) They're Hebrews. He's speaking their language. And here's the quotation. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When you accept Christ as the sin substitute, you have appeased the wrath of God. You're saved. You may wonder, saved from what? 
saved from the wrath of God. He is a holy God. His wrath will be outpoured upon sinners, except those sinners who are washed in the blood of Jesus the Son. And if you refuse that, it has to be personal, then what awaits is this. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now look, God offered the ancient Israelites rest in a land, the promised land, Canaan. But it is only a symbol of a greater rest. But what God is saying is from before time, God already ordained that they would have that piece of real estate in which to be at rest. In the same way, God is saying from before time, he had a provision for our sin. There's nothing more that needs to be done in order for you and I to be at perfect rest with Jesus Christ. What he did in coming as a babe in Bethlehem, growing to suffer and die on a cross in our place, that's the totality of what is necessary in order for you and I to be at perfect and eternal rest with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. Nothing more needs to be done. That's the point here. Now verse 4, for he has said somewhere... For God has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. What's another word for the seventh day? Sabbath. And here's what he said. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Could I ask you a question? Would you be brave enough to guess what book of the Bible is that verse found in? Genesis. Way to go, folks. Well, then why does the writer of Hebrews say there at the beginning of verse 4, he has said somewhere. Why doesn't he say he has said in Genesis, and why doesn't he give us the specific chapter and verse? Why is he making me guess here? For he has said somewhere. Anyone know why he didn't give chapter and verse? They didn't have it, bro. They didn't have it. When the writer of Hebrews was writing, all he could do is give us general pointers. He could say, go to Genesis, go to Hebrews. He couldn't get more precise. It's a blessing to have the... Bible divided in chapters and verses. Look how easy. I can say, hey, folks, can you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3? Man, in a few minutes, everyone here is in the same place. They couldn't do it in those days. It has, it has been said somewhere. It wasn't until relatively modern times, meaning some centuries ago, when some guy took it upon himself to give us chapter and verse divisions. Now, I forgot the date. So if you're bored, you can do a Google search right now. And check it out. See when the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible were given. And then just raise your hand. It'll be quite impressive. People will really think you're something. <laughs> anyway, it was added, which is why when you read the Bible and you, you finish a chapter and you get to the next chapter, sometimes you say, oh, man, it shouldn't have ended there. You may be right. The chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. The content is. But if you say, oh, no, that shouldn't be verse 4, that should still be verse 3. Very cool. You have as much right to think that as the guy who came up with the chapter and verse. Now, I think he did a pretty good job, but he wasn't perfect. But anyway, that's why the author here is saying he has said somewhere. And what did he say? Well, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, here's what happened. God worked hard for six days, didn't he? And he worked on physical creation. But then he finished it and he rested. Is it, was it because God was exhausted? Was he tired? Did he say, oy vey. <laughs> I've been working for like long days, six solid days. Oy, I need a union. 
I don't even get a break here. I need a break. I'm taking the seventh day to lounge. I got like this big lounge thing, a celestial lounge. I got to rest. No, 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 no. That has nothing to do with it. When it says God rested, it was the rest of accomplishment, of completion, of fulfillment, of a finished work. It's the kind of rest of an artist who creates a marvelous portrait, steps back and says, ah, I'm satisfied. It's the rest of a completed work. There's no need for anything more to be created. That's the deal. So if God is finished with the work of creation, what's he doing now? Sustaining what he created. How do you think we're sustained here, for crying out loud? The world's just not going on its own. The creator of the universe is keeping it going with rains and sunshine and all the rest that sustains it. So what is this all about? I think the writer is saying, just as God finished his work of physical creation and rested, he finished the work of spiritual redemption for you, and you could rest. Just as God, when he finished something, rested, it is finished. In fact, those are the words Jesus uttered from the cross, didn't he? It is finished. Stop being one of those theists who think you have to add to the work of Christ. You don't. There's nothing that has to be added to the completeness and totality of his substitutionary atonement. That's what's saying here. God rested from his physical miracle. He rested from his spiritual miracle. He's done You can enter into it paid in full. Stop being religious and jumping through the hoops and thinking you got to do all. Well, then do we do nothing too? Do we just sit around on our lounge chairs? Oh, no. We serve like crazy, but the motivation is different. We don't serve in order to earn our salvation. We serve in light of our salvation. We don't serve to be saved. We served because we is saved, and we want to say thank you to the one who saved us. The motive is entirely different. So that's what's going on here. Now, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying, through David. Okay, remember, he's speaking to Jews. So he's quoting from one of their own, David, the psalmist. Uh, And so... uh, It says today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, these are the words David quoted way back in the Psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Look at the emphasis on today. Why is that? Well, because yesterday's over, folks. Whatever you done did, good or bad, doesn't matter. You can't get it back. It's over. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You may not get there, nor I. We don't know that. The only thing you can be sure of is today. The rule of thumb is wherever your body is at the present time, that's where you ought to be. So your body isn't in yesterday. That's over. And your body isn't in tomorrow. It's just here. So the emphasis is on today. Don't worry about what happened yesterday or what may happen tomorrow. If you're too tied to yesterday, you're laden with guilt. If you're too tied to tomorrow, you're burdened by anxiety. Forget about that stuff. You get no grace from God to deal with what happened yesterday or what may happen tomorrow. You only get grace of God for doing the right thing today, which is why it says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let me say that. You're you're hearing the voice of God, meaning his word, his truth. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
Well, that's what God said. You don't have to work for your salvation. Jesus obtained it for you. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You only have today, folks. Now, verse 8. Oh, so here we'll get a little sticky. By the way, I will end. Mary is so lovely to give that helpful hint that we should end early so we can get to the pastor's reception, which we will. I, I promise you. I promise you we will. I hope, I think. <laughs> so, verse 8. Uh, so, here's where we get a little sticky. I'll tell you what I mean. If you have the King James Version, it will read, For if Jesus. If you have just about any other version, it will read, verse 8 that is, it will read, For if Joshua. Am I correct? Okay, I knew that. I just wanted you to. You know, so here's the deal. That's a big discrepancy. Which is it, Joshua or Jesus? Well, it's not both, but thanks for trying to be, be politically correct. Ah, now Barry is right. Listen, in Hebrew, the, the word for Joshua and Jesus is exactly the same. So here's what happened. The word is Yahashua or Yeshua. Yeshua. When Jesus was on earth, he was not referred to as Jesus. <laughs> he was referred to as Yeshua. So it's Yeshua in Hebrew. And when you get on over to the Greek, it's Jesus. And then when you get into English, it's Jesus. So that's how we got it. And the root word for Joshua and Jesus, as I say, are exactly the same. Hence, the translators of the King James Version centuries ago meant well they saw that word and chose to translate it joshua but it cannot be joshua here that would be nonsensical tell you what i mean look excuse me it has to be joshua here it can't be jesus here because let me substitute for if jesus had given them rest he would not have spoken of another day after that what are you talking about Jesus did give them rest. He is the ultimate rest. There is no day bringing a greater rest other than the day of Jesus and his great rest. It's talking about Joshua. Here's what I mean. Moses died. He was buried somewhere on Mount Nebo. Some of us, Lord willing, are going to that place. Lord willing, in April, Mount Nebo, where Moses was buried. Joshua, after Moses, then led the people of Israel into their land, their place of promise, their place of rest. Well, what kind of rest did they find there? Temporary, political rest, not ultimate rest. So it has to be Joshua here. It has to say, for if Joshua had given them rest, if he had given them the rest to end all rest, then God would not have spoken of another day of rest after that. So what does this mean with regard to your choice of translation if you choose the King James? It means uh, the King James is marvelous, is wonderful. You do not have to forsake it nor relinquish it. And by the way, you wouldn't anyway because people who hold to the King James sometimes hold to it more than they hold to Jesus. It's like insulting someone's mother even to bring this up. But, you know, I thought the other day I'm 70 years old now. And it's such a blessing to not care so much. 
about, you know, when you're a teenager, you care about everything. Oh, I hope that one likes me. I hope this one likes me. I got nothing to lose now. I'm already married. She's stuck with me. What am I going to do? You know what I'm saying? So uh, you just spit it out. So let me spit this out. Though the King James Version reads so beautifully, it is. Such, and so it was such a magnificent work of translation. When it was done, it is an inferior translation. Now, I just said it, didn't I? Now, why do I say that? Well, it was magnificent based upon what was available to the translators in the day. But since then, oh, my goodness, our linguistic skills, our archaeological discovery. For instance, 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That just opened up all kinds of possibilities. And so the modern translations, the good ones, are actually more accurate and precise and get us back to the original manuscripts even better than the King James. I didn't say stop reading it, but I am saying this. If you're a serious student of the Bible, that is not the one to study from. Now, the last time I said something uh, similar to this, oh my goodness, I almost got raked over the coals. And what I said, it was at the church I pastored in, uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I told people uh, there is no Santa Claus. People were inflamed. It was amazing to me. They didn't want that pleasant notion to be taken away from their children. But, but I said, you know, eventually your children are going to grow up and find out that you lied to them. <laughs> and then you kind of blew your credibility when you talked to them about Jesus. Maybe they'll say, you lied to me about Santa. Are you lying to me about the Savior? To me, that's a serious matter for crying out loud. You confuse Christmas with Santa instead of the Savior, and you expect your kids to emerge from it, having a good understanding. Well, okay, that's, that was my deal, and so I shared it, and holy Toledo. Oh, now, wait a second. I notice I'm not there anymore. <laughs> ah, it's coming to me. That's probably why. So, you know, here's the deal. My people are raked over the coals, as they should be, for their adherence to tradition as over against truth. But so are you people, adherents of tradition that conflict with truth. There's all kinds of tradition that's creeped into the church that you, you have so embraced, you don't even know it's not biblical. It's just stuff you're used to. Now, you can adhere to it, but you've got to separate out between what God requires and what you like. I mean, there have been churches who for years who thought it's biblical to be segregated. That's the way I was raised. <laughs> Well, with all due respect to the way you were raised, the way you were raised is not authoritative. Only the word of God is, and God likes the mosaic. And that's why he saves people from every tribe and kindred and tongue. He wants glory from every kind of person. And so it's interesting how some people are acceptable to him, but not in certain churches. Well, I just call that as bad as what my people do tradition. I mean, it's fun when we bash my people, the Jews, but the only reason their shortcomings are recorded is as a mirror to yours. It's the same doggone thing for crying out loud. Now, read what any Bible translation you want, but I'm just telling you from a purely objective point of view, if you're a serious student of the Bible, the King James Version is not based on the voluminous manuscript evidence which we have today that gets us right back to the original Greek and Hebrew text with much more accuracy. Yes, sir, Scott. Okay, that's a good question. I will recommend, uh, Scott's asking if I could recommend a translation, maybe a book to go along with it. Um, 
So there are many good ones. So uh, I like the New American Standard. It's not a matter of I like. Uh, the translation work. Look, there's different translations. One is called a word-for-word. Word. The other is called a thought-for-thought. Thought. If you have the NIV, really fine translation. That's a thought-for-thought thought, um, rendering, meaning the translators look to the original manuscripts, see the thought, and then translate the thought into English words. I don't want that. I want a word-for-word word translation where the translators look to every word and phrase and simply bring it over to English, including the word order. Let me tell you what I mean. In English, we have a subject, a verb, and an object. Here's a subject, I. Here's a verb, throw. Here's an object, a ball to you. I throw a ball to you. That's how we do it. We don't do to you a ball I throw. That would be weird. But in Greek and Hebrew, they don't follow subject, verb, object. How do they compose a sentence? What, they, what the writer thinks uh, warrants the most emphasis, is most important, is put right up front. So if you have a thought-for-thought thought translation like the NIV, you're not going to get that benefit. They have smoothed it out so that for the English reader, the word order is what we're used to. Well, I don't want to read a smooth text. I want to read an accurate text. Keep the word order the way it is so I could see what gets the emphasis up front. So I like the New American Standard for that reason, even though it doesn't read as smoothly. It's more mechanical and wooden, but it's word for word. Another one is the ESV, English Standard Version. Also very, very fine. And there are others as well. Please don't let me... Um, unduly offend, uh, uh, offend you. There's the new King James Version, which frankly is based on better scholarship. So, so there are many, many, many good ones. I like the New American Standard or the ESV. As far as what goes alongside that, that'll have to be a discussion for another day. Are you talking about like a commentary or something? Or, okay. So a good recommendation, if you're going to get a Bible, get a study Bible. So you can get a New American Standard, study Bible, or an ESV, study Bible, or a, new, or a New King James Version, study Bible. And what will that be? Along with the text, you'll get marvelously helpful notes, like when was the book written? Um, uh, what does Joshua mean in Hebrew? Where is Thessalonica today? <laughs> you know, all those very, very helpful, helpful tools in a study Bible. So that, that would be, now it makes it thick right there. So it's not the thing you want to carry around with you all the time, but for serious study, I recommend a study Bible. Whatever translation you're using, they all come in that form, study Bible. Okay, so let's, uh, yeah, what do you say, Mike, baby? Oh. Yes. They spent your life. You know, when my father was alive and he became a new believer, he was kind of a rough guy, sort of a street guy with very limited reading ability. I got him a children's Bible, and God used that. So don't misunderstand. If I had a young person or someone who needed it, I would get, uh, you know, like the living Bible. That is not a translation. It's called a paraphrase. What does that mean? Uh, it means you're reading something, and then you just write it in your own words. 
Now, the, the ones who did that in the Living Bible did a masterful job. It's really, really wonderful. But that's not a translation. That's just a paraphrase. So a serious student of the Bible should not depend only on a paraphrase. However, if I knew somebody and just didn't have the benefit of education, I had limited reading ability. Oh, come on. You get them a Living Bible. You do, you, you do whatever you can to, to, to kind of feed them. God could use all that. So... So I don't want to be unduly rigid about this, but for the majority of you who have a degree of literacy and so on, I think you would benefit from, from some of these other translations that, that, that we've, been, we, we've been speaking about. Okay, so look. So anyway, that's the point. Joshua couldn't give them the ultimate rest. Therefore, God spoke of another day of rest. And so there remains, verse 9, we'll end with verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath. So, so, so um, what Joshua did was just a temporary rest. There remains a Sabbath rest. Now, let me mention a few things about the Sabbath. Every once in a while, I'm asked legitimately, why don't we keep the Sabbath here? So the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which would have been yesterday, right? But we didn't show up yesterday, did we? We're here on Sunday. So are we violating the fourth commandment, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it? Holy. We don't get together on the seventh day unless you're a seventh day Adventist. We don't. We, we get together on Sunday. So are we in violation of the Sabbath? No. <clears throat> so here's my answer uh, to, to, to folks who wonder about that, especially me. They say, as a Jew, what's up with you? You know, you're supposed to be doing the Sabbath thing. Why don't you observe the Sabbath? To which I say, I do. No, no, no. You, you worship on Sundays and you don't get it. The Sabbath is not a day. It's a lifestyle. I'll tell you what I mean. Everything in the Old Testament is concrete, elementary, and simply points to ultimate spiritual realities to come. For instance, lots of talk of the temple in the Old Testament, right? Jews would have to go to Jerusalem, up to the temple, meet with God. Where's the temple today? You say this. No, it's not. This is a building, folks. There's nothing holy about brick and mortar here. I hope it houses holy people and holy activities, but folks, I'm not kissing these walls. You get some kind of disease. It's just stuff. This is not the temple. Where is the temple today? You is. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So you see, the Old Testament showed us this physical reality, but it points to an ultimate spiritual reality. Those people only knew of a localized God. You want to find God? You got to go up to the temple in Jerusalem. Well, where do you find him today? Folks, I found him in Pearland this morning. God just woke up and prayed to him, asked for help, prayed a few things right there. it's something called progressive revelation. When you go from the Old Testament to the New, you're progressing. God is such a good teacher. He gives us things in elementary form in the Old and fulfills it in the the New. And so that's the temple. So to the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, he introduces to the Sabbath. What did it say? It said to slaves, I give you permission to rest. (laughs) Slaves don't get a day off. God says, you do with me. That's what the Sabbath was. Take a break. Cease from working. Cease from worrying. So what does that have to do with all of us? Well, we're enslaved to sin. And God is saying, I give you permission to cease working to atone for your own sin and to cease worrying about it. I give you permission to enter into Sabbath rest. 
For my son Jesus paid it all. I give you, someone in bondage to sin, permission to rest. On a day? No, that's our new lifestyle. One of our own, Chris Brewster, was killed this last week. Police officer. Tragic. Always, but we knew him, the family and everybody. I can't tell you, however, what great comfort is coming the way of his wife, his sisters, his mom, his dad, and his friends because they know Chris, by faith, entered into Sabbath rest. He accepted the merits of and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was observing the Sabbath. He was resting from his own works and resting in the finished work of Christ. And that bullet did not seal his destiny. Jesus did. I can't tell you what a comfort it is for the family who grieve. Oh, they grieve and have a right to, but they don't grieve as ones without hope, meaning they are hopeful, hopefully expectant to see Chris again. Why? Because Chris entered into Sabbath rest. It's not a day. Well, then why do we get together on Sunday? Anybody know? The day of the Lord's resurrection. Look at here, folks. I don't want to get together with you and sing songs about a dead Savior. And nothing to rejoice in if Jesus is still entombed. There's a lot of rejoicing about a living Savior. We don't get together and worship a dead. For us, it's not just a cross. It's the cross plus an empty tomb. We get together because the resurrection was the Father's way of vindicating the Son. Death didn't have the final say with Jesus. He beat up on death, the last enemy. The Father raised him up as if to say, what my Son did for you is acceptable to me. Now enter into Sabbath rest based on what he did, not on what you think you could do, oh, you religious person. If Israel couldn't pull it off with their rich religion, you can't with your flimsy religion. So whatever the ism is, and I won't mention any specifics because I didn't prior, I shouldn't have done it, but whatever ism it is, including Judaism, just a man-made religion, so too is the one you grew up with. Leave it. Enter into Sabbath rest. So that's a, so if someone says, why don't you observe that? We do. When I rest in the merits of Jesus, when I feel permission to rest, not to work for my salvation, not to worry about my eternity, but to praise God for securing it for me, that's what the Sabbath is meant to be. It's permission to a slave to be free. That's what the Sabbath is. Okay, so... We'll stop there because as Mary commanded, I mean suggested, (laughs) we want to go and love on our uh, well-deserving pastor and his wife. You'll have a chance to give a hug and say kind words and leave a note and do whatever you'd like to. First, we'll pray and then we'll be on our way. By the way, that's from 1230 to 2.30 right there in our beautiful lobby. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for everything. Wouldn't it be foolish for us to have this conversation if you didn't rise up from death? You did. You've ascended. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. We're speaking to the Father, in fact, through you. What a great mediator to you, you are, Lord Jesus. Thank you for making peace between us and your Father. We couldn't affect it, no matter how good we think we are. It had to be you, the sinless one, who died for us sinful ones. 
during this Christmas season. And every season, we rejoice in the fact that you came as a babe in flesh, so attractive, so inviting, so non-threatening. Yes, you want us all to come to you without fear. And then you grew for the sole purpose of suffering and dying in our place. Dare we think it wasn't enough and we have to add to it? Oh, I hope not. I pray, oh God, there be not one person who leaves here today with a restless soul. No, I pray by faith in you, each person would leave having entered into Sabbath rest. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for motivating us and gifting us and supplying us to serve you and bring glory to your name. Not because we have to, but because now we want to, because you've saved us. We're grateful to all that you've done, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to seeing you face to face one day and serving you throughout eternity. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. See you next year.